Welcome to the Mind Talks podcast. You are with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. Our special guest is a professional tennis player, a double Olympian, one of which he achieved a bronze medal at the 2020 Tokyo Games. He's the founder of High Impact Athletes that helps individuals have a life-saving impact. A warm welcome to Marcus Daniel. How are you, Marcus? And thank you for coming yeah, on. Great. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, yeah, really excited to chat mentality and, and everything sport. Looking forward to it. Brilliant. Perfect, perfect. Um, we have a routine and it's to take our guests all the way back. So what is your first living memory, either playing or watching a sport? So I, I'm not sure if this is actually a memory of mine or if it's just a story I've been told so many times that it's sort of become a memory. But yeah, basically, when I could walk, uh, I had a tennis racket in my hand and my mum out at the farmhouse, she hung a tennis ball from a, inside a stocking from the ceiling and I was just obsessed with this thing. And I have this memory in my head of having this this hanging tennis ball in a stocking in front of me and just wanting to hit it and yeah. uh yeah that was probably when i was i don't know two years old or something like that um so yeah <laughs> that that might that might not be a memory but that's what comes to my mind <laughs> and at that well two years old you probably won't remember much about it but then in terms of sport was tennis the early sport that you loved when you were younger or did, were you into other sports as well Oh no, I was I was into anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. Uh, for actually, you know, through until I was about fifteen. Uh, you know, in, in New Zealand, it's pretty common to, when you're growing up, to do a whole bunch of different sports, and I was no exception. You know, I, I grew up snowboarding, skiing, surfing, uh, playing tennis, soccer, rugby, and cricket at lunchtime and recess at school, um, basketball, like just everything, and. I wouldn't change that for the world. I do think I I started my tennis career probably a little ways behind my peers because so many people focused intensely on that one sport from early on, but I, I wouldn't change it for anything. Well, you did so many different sports and what I liked about it was just, just the various different types of sports, you know, soccer, and then you got from soccer to snowboarding. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is just just the different types of skills that you are learning. Um, what would you say was the the main skill that would that could be transferred into all of those sports? That's a good question. I think I think probably uh, there's. I'm gonna find this hard to translate into words, but there's a sense of balance and agility that I think transfers from a bunch of different sports into whatever you're doing at the time. Yeah. So I find it easy now to pick up any sport. You know, I, I, if I see something for the first time, I find it quite easy to become reasonably adept quite quickly. And yeah. that's not the same for, it's not the same for quite a few tennis players that I know. I think there are, there are other people like me on tour, but, um, yeah, I find it easier than most to, to, transfer into a, into another sport pretty quickly yeah at what age did you start to get proper ch tennis um coaching uh well at at the risk of offending my childhood coaches um <laughs> put it this way I, I started taking it seriously or more seriously when i was 15 okay so at the age of 15 actually i had to choose between tennis and soccer i i was in the the national squad for both and wow. i got told i had to choose one or the other to remain in the national squad okay so i chose tennis and at that point i thought okay well if i've given up this thing that i really love then i should probably take tennis a little more seriously and, and actually you know uh put myself on the grind to trying to become a professional so at that point i left home and went to boarding school up in auckland which was you know it's like a seven eight hour drive away from where i grew up and then I started putting more time into tennis. But I would say, I think the first coach that I really gelled with and that I thought sort of took me to a whole other level I found when I was maybe 21. Okay. Um, so I've had a huge amount of help from a lot of people along the way. 
but in terms of yeah in terms of really going to another level uh actually the coach that i found at around 21 and who i who i still work with to this day uh david samuel he's he's the guy who i think really really took me further one of the interesting things for myself is just making that decision what was your choice what was the reason behind your choice so there have been many guests who have had to make that decision on what sport they are going to choose so i'm really really interested in what was it about tennis what was the actual reason that you chose it over soccer it was a really difficult decision for me because i i love team sports i love uh i love the sort of the chemistry and how you can be greater than the sum of your parts uh i think but i think the thing that drew me most to tennis was how all of the responsibility everything is on you and that means that you can't have any excuses you can't blame anyone else if you win or lose you do it on your own hmm. and uh i think actually you know in the sort of the, the latter half of my tennis career i found a really happy medium because i i started playing solely doubles in 2015 i think was the first year i did that so you've still got this this huge dependence on yourself but you've also got the team element you know it's like you can feel that chemistry with your doubles partner but if you have a really bad day the team's going to lose so yeah i i think that's why i've really enjoyed doubles so much and uh and probably plays a part in in why i've had success in that discipline did you find it um straightforward um switching to more doubles than playing singles yeah it was because i i played both doubles and singles until i was i don't know 24 25 something like that uh, and I'd always had a little more success in doubles and actually the style of singles that I played lent itself to playing good doubles. Okay. Um, I always say I was born about four decades too late. I think I would have been a fantastic singles player if I was playing tennis in the sort of the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I actually was a really organic transition. I started doing so well in doubles tournaments that I, if I wanted to play the higher level tournaments and doubles i couldn't make those tournaments with my singles ranking okay. so it was just sort of this natural gap started widening between those two rankings and and at one point i just said okay i need to i need to focus on the doubles because i'm just doing much better at it okay with regards to a listener who is not privy or is new to tennis um, what would you say are the fundamentals of being a tennis player It's a really interesting progression. So I think there's there's hand-eye coordination is a must. You know, you, you are playing with a racket, with a small ball that's moving around all over the place. You're playing against an opponent. So, you know, unlike golf where the stage is set and you can sort of take your time with each shot, you're reacting to, to another opponent. So hand-eye coordination, being able to react quickly and be agile so that you can move your body to where the ball is going to be. Um, but then the part that becomes more and more important as you get better is the mental side. And once you get to a certain level, everyone can hit amazing shots and everyone's really fit. So the differences are actually on the mental side. They're, they're small uh, differences in intensity on the day or in the ability to focus for slightly longer on a really hot day when you're playing a match that lasts for four hours or that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, to, to begin with, it's a really all round physical skill set, And then the higher you go, the more the mentality and the, the, uh, the mental battle becomes definitive. What do you think were your strengths growing up and your weaknesses growing up when it came to your mindset? I think my strengths, where I'm, I am a fighter. I'm a, I'm a good competitor. So regardless of whether I'm losing or close to losing or that sort of thing, I, I always put in a good shift, put in a good effort, and that's almost always true at the top. But coming up through the levels, you know, some people really, if they start a match the wrong way, then it's like, okay, today's not my day, sort of mm -hmm. thing. 
Yeah. And that was never really the case for me. So I think that was a strength. I think my biggest weakness mentally always, and this is from a young age right through until now, has been a bit of imposter syndrome. Like, a, you know, I come from a, a farm in rural New Zealand in the middle of nowhere. And I never thought I'd be competing at Grand Slams or at the Olympics or that sort of thing. You know, it was a, it was a dream, like a, a proper dream. I never felt like it could be a reality. So to get to those stages and actually to break through every stage, I really had to fight against this feeling that I didn't belong there. Um, and I still, you know, I, I still get that feeling sometimes. The, the deeper I go into a Grand Slam, the more I'm like, wow, am I really here? And that's not a good thing to have even slightly in your head when you're trying to win a tennis match. Correlate so much to imposter syndrome um, in the profession that I'm in. Um, I still wonder how I got myself um, in that profession. Um, my question to you would be in regards to that imposter syndrome. Have you had any hacks or been given any hacks from any psychologists into dealing with your imposter syndrome? Yeah, they're... They are hacks, but they're hacks that require a lot of work. Um, so the two that come to mind and how, how legit is swearing on this podcast? Cause my coach gives it to me straight. Okay. So, so, so the first is the first is same shit, different level. And that's, that's been so true for me. Like the barriers that you confront in your mind. So in, in tennis, there are sort of three professional levels. There's futures, challenges, and the tour. And I guess Grand Slams are sort of the, the peak of the tour. At futures, you can, if you get your first futures point, you can legitimately call yourself a professional. Like you have an international ranking. Yeah. To get that first point, I had to battle through imposter syndrome. To get from futures to challenges, I had to battle imposter syndrome. To get from chal uh, challenges to the tour, same thing. And to get from the tour to like going deeper in slams, same thing. And realizing that it's the same shit is like, okay, I've overcome it. I've mm. overcome it three, four, five times in the past. These levels that I thought were my ceiling, I broke through them. So when you're confronted by this feeling, be like, okay, I, I accept it. I see it. But look at what's happened in the past and look at what I've come through. So that's actually those, that sort of ties in because the second thing that came to my head was, go back to the facts, you know, like you have achieved, you have broken through. If you look at it uh, from a statistics or from a data basis, you're not an imposter. Your, your stats on tour reflect that you're not an imposter. So yeah, a combination of those two, same shit, different level, and just looking at the hard facts and accepting the emotion, but saying, okay, what's the, what's true here? Um, and, you know, mixed results. Um, it, it doesn't always work for me in the moment, but uh, I guess the fact that I have had some success in my career is a testament to the fact that it's worked sometimes. Has there been ever been a moment when you're in a winning position and then it all of a sudden imposter syndrome just comes and it, ref it has an impact on the result? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's, that's when it's most prone to coming in. Mm. You know, if you're about to have what could be sort of a career boosting win, or you're about to beat a player who was ranked far ahead of you and you know it would be something that you could claim for the rest of your life uh yeah that that's the hardest time to avoid it because i think one of the things that makes tennis such an interesting sport uh is because you can get into a winning position you can literally get one point away from winning and the match isn't over and it can completely change yeah and the closer you get to winning, the more prone you are to, to future think, to getting out of the present moment and thinking, what if I win this match? Imagine being able to tell my parents that I just beat this player or that I just won this tournament. And when you get out of the present moment, that's the, the biggest risk you have of losing the flow, getting tight, having a change in momentum. And yeah, you can't run the clock out. You know, you've, you've got to beat someone on the last point to, to win a match. And that person's that person's not going to give it to you. Mm. So uh, yeah, those those moments uh, where 
where imposter syndrome is, is most prone to coming up are the moments that are probably, if you can push it down, will have the biggest impact on your career. Okay. I mean, really intrigued in working out or understanding how imposter syndrome works with you in regards to being part of a doubles, being part of a double now, because when you're, um, it only affects yourself. Now you have a partner, you've got imposter syndrome. So how does that work for you? Yeah, I think that second piece is really important. Uh, and I think it works differently for different personalities, but my personality is I really don't want to let the team down. I think a lot of doubles players are actually, they feel a little more independent or selfish about doubles. They're like, okay, I want to win this match. But for me, it's, it's all about the team. So if I'm having a bad day or if I start getting tight, I have this added component of, oh no, am I going to let the team down? And that can be a bit of a spiral. Um, and that's where I think it's really important to have a really deep and trusting relationship with your doubles partner because in those moments you can say, oh, hey, I'm, I'm feeling a bit tight. Um, can you, you know, slap me or, or uh, you know, tell me something that I should focus on. Um, and just having a little tip like, okay, just I want you to focus on your exhale when you hit. You know, just having some small thing to focus on can actually really help to get your mind away from these spirals that, that everyone can go down from time to time. That kind of leads me to the next question. So imagine you're in a situation where you're, you're in a doubles match and your partner is absolutely, absolutely having a stinker. What is the type of thing... That you would say to to encourage them and to help them get through that um well one thing that i found really helpful is is to laugh mm. you know if someone's truly having a stinker mm. it's obvious it's obvious to everyone yeah and you know after a particularly bad shot if i just turn around and laugh and you know like sort of put my arm around and be like wow that was incredible uh then it's sort of, you know, humor can, can lighten a situation hugely. Um, so that's one thing, you know, if it's, if something's particularly bad, then I think laughter helps. And then the other thing is like, like what I was saying before, a tennis match is not over until someone's beaten you on the last point. So a lot of, especially doubles matches, this is, this is actually an interesting difference between doubles and singles is a lot of doubles matches are won if you just scrap it out until the last point. Just keep your energy high and just keep scrapping. Um, and so then the other thing that I would do is just be like, okay, you know, like don't let it get you down. Uh, let's just keep fighting for every point. Doesn't matter what happens in the points. Let's just keep fighting. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's you, you'll lose more than you win. Uh, if there is a proper stinker happening, but mm. you know, if you if you eke out three out of ten matches that you shouldn't win just by having high energy and fighting till the end, that gives you the opportunity to play another match. You're still in the tournament, so you're still you still won the match. You've won the points. You've got a little extra prize money, and you've got the opportunity to play better. So, this is actually one thing that I spoke with my coach about quite a lot uh, over the years. Is how do we try to win more of those really scrappy matches? Because upping that percentage a little bit can actually have a huge impact on your year-end ranking. Definitely. definitely. Yeah, that links into my next question because what I wanted to say is um, you said something that I've, on both um, Edwin and, and definitely on Edwin's behalf, that when it comes to tennis, it's definitely about the mindset and we're both avid tennis fans. So... We know that the the difference is just the mindset. So my question to you is, do you do any form of simulation where you put yourself in a situation where you are, I don't know, maybe you've done, I don't know, say two hours of hard work and then you go into the tennis court just to really put your body through, I guess, um, a scenario if you was go, if you to four hour match yeah for sure uh this is something that's particularly worked on in the off season so tennis has a, a ridiculously short off season um the tour goes from sort of start of january through to mid to late november 
So we have a very short window of time to take a break and then try to prepare our bodies and our minds for the next season. But that, you know, between four to six week patch uh, at the end of the year, that's when you'll really push yourself physically, like try to build your body a bit before the next season. And during that time, you're absolutely whacked. You're, you're very fatigued. And uh, so that's when, you know, if you've just done a huge gym session, then you go out on court and it's known by the coach and by the players that you're really tired. And so it's a mental exercise. It's how much focus can I put on this court? What can I get out of this training session on court knowing that my body is completely gone? And I mean, you, you see it in every Grand Slam, you know, on the single side, not so much on the double side. It, it only really happens now at Wimbledon where it's five sets and it can be quite hot. You know, I've, I've played some four hour plus matches there where stamina really does come into play mm. but on the single side you see it every grand slam where people are cramping yeah. you know it, it gets to the fourth set the fifth set in australia it can be you know like 60 degrees celsius on court i don't know what that is in oh, fahrenheit wow. but it's probably like 120 or something like that um <laughs> and those are insane conditions to to play any sport in so it just becomes how who can last the longest um, and if you've done that training in your off season and you know, okay, even though I'm absolutely smashed, I can still focus here. That can be hugely beneficial. My next question kind of links to coaching. So are you somebody who can easily take on advice from your coach or do you, are you someone that may question the advice that's given to you by your coach? For me, I, I love advice. Well, okay. So it's a, it's a combination. I think I am a big questioner of advice if yeah. I don't agree with it. Yeah. But if I do agree with it, I think I can implement it really quickly. Yeah. Um, and this, this can make for it. It's yeah. I think my coach has to have, has to have a particular personality for that to really work. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the reason why I've so much enjoyed working with the coach that I still work with is because he's an absolute straight shooter. Yeah. And he also, doesn't mind if I shoot straight back at him. So if I don't agree with with something that he's trying to teach me, then I'll say, you know, I don't agree with this and this is why. And if he has a good answer for that, it's like, okay, yeah, fair enough. Okay, I'll 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 put it into practice and see how it goes. Uh but I have worked with coaches in the past where if you question what they're trying to say, they get quite offended. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I in this in this career, like sport careers are so short. Yeah. And there's no time for bullshit. There's no time for waffle. You know, if I would rather have something given to me straight, that's really hard to hear yeah. and go through the, the pain of hearing something difficult and try to implement it than to have a coach sort of touch on it softly, try to waffle around it a little bit and, you know, subtly get it in the back door. That, that just takes too much time and, and time is time is king in a sport career so yeah i uh i'd say i am a questioner but i also if if the questions are answered then i'm quick to implement what what would you say is probably the best advice you received from some of your competitors from some of the competitors i think probably probably not explicit advice but more just lessons learned from playing against people. Okay. Uh, and I think, I think the, probably the most powerful lesson is just that you should never show defeat. You know, it's, it's sort of, so I, I think naturally I am a good fighter, but when I've played against people who are really intense and really energetic until the last point, the feeling is different you, you you're less sure about victory and that slight bit of doubt that can turn into one of those three out of ten scrappy matches mm -hmm. you know that that you that you win as as the opponent um so yeah i think like a, a few guys are coming to, into my head around this sort of thing the the guy that really comes into my mind is this guy jean julien roger okay. he's been one of the top doubles players for for many many years and he just has phenomenal energy right through a match until the last point. You know, he could 
save a match point at sort of nine three down in the super tie break and let out a come on and and sprint back to the to the back end and you see that and you're like hold on a second i've got i've got five more match points here <laughs> but that little bit of doubt that's in your head is yeah. like oh maybe he knows something that i don't yeah so yeah that's that's probably the best lesson i've, I've learned from opponents and I have to tell you guys this story because when you started asking that question, I thought you were going to ask about the best lesson learned from, from a coach. And this um, this lesson that I it had huge impact on my career. Um, and it was from the same guy that I'm still working with, David Samuel. Uh, and it's sort of gone down in legend now in the Academy of Bath, which I, I was training there for four or five years. Mm. Uh, and it's called the, the Chapel of Bullshit Talk. And I was playing this challenger event in, in the UK and I lost a really close singles match. I thought I'd played pretty well. Uh, like 20 minutes after the match, he sat me down with another one of the bath coaches there actually, mm. and just bollocked me for like two hours. <laughs> and the, the thrust of it was you're worshiping at the chapel of bullshit. And the chapel of bullshit is this place where people go because they've got all of these excuses that they want to put put up on the altar and be like, you know, I didn't win because this point didn't go my way. Or, you know, I was about to win this point and then a ball rolled over from the next court and they had to call a let and then he won it and then I knew that it wasn't my day. All that sort of thing. Mm. And these excuses are so easy to find. Like in, in everything, not just in tennis. I mean, you know, I can think of countless examples in my own career in tennis but in everything it's so easy to find these excuses for why things won't go your way uh mm. and it was like look it, you're just worshiping like there's if if you're in the chapel of bullshit you're actually not 100 mentally ready to fight in that match in each point because if yeah. you're ready to fight then the excuses are gone like that they're, they're not there in the present moment and that was actually a catapult for me because it, while it was incredibly hard to be on the receiving end of that talk, I could see through the, the, the tough words and think, okay, yeah, that's actually really true. And I need to work on this. And from that point, we had an agreement where in practice, I had to be a hundred percent there on every ball. And if I wasn't, and if he noticed it, or if I noticed it, we had to stop. Yeah. and the first time we tried that i could only do about 30 35 minutes of practice <laughs> it was just a completely different level of intensity it was imagine. so exhausting yeah and and then you know built that stamina over the course of weeks and months and then my results just started exploding um and yeah like the the guy who comes to mind who i don't think has ever worshipped at the chapel of bullshit is bullshit is rafael nadal that guy doesn't have excuses. The guy yeah. could be bleeding from both hands with blisters, bleeding from both feet with blisters. And he just carries on. And every point he's fully focused. It's, it's incredible. So yeah, that's, uh, the chapel of bullshit. I was, I was the original, um, the original recipient of the talk, but it's been given to many, many since. I'm intrigued about, the intensity so how are you dealing with the intensity of the game as you're getting older because i've been watching tennis since maybe the early 2000s and in terms of the intensity especially in the men's game it's just ridiculous honestly um serves are harder um the men are a lot fitter um a lot more intense they're running they're a lot more athletic so how are you dealing with the, 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 the new kids on the block as you're getting older? I think when you're in it, you don't notice it as much. Mm. You know, it's like if you're already in the river, then if the river speeds up, you don't, you don't notice it as much as if you were to jump mm. in from, from the outside. Yeah. Uh, but I have noticed in my career, uh, so I've, I've been focusing on doubles now, I think for seven years. And I've yeah. noticed since I started focusing on doubles, the level is way higher now than it was when I started. Mm. Um, and that's, that's in every way. So the, the level on court is higher, but also people are far more intent off court at doing, you know, all of the fitness, all of the prehab, the injury prevention, all of this sort of stuff. And it's, for me, it's just, you've got to do what your peers are doing 
and and see if you can find points of difference so yeah i i guess i haven't i guess because i've been part of it for a while now it's just felt a little bit like normal to get more and more intense um but yeah i can i can definitely understand that you know there's there's one guy who took a break for sort of six years and then jumped back in and uh I can only imagine what it was like for him to experience the intensity now compared to six years ago, but credit to him. He's actually done really well. So, okay. so my next question kind of links to um, Olympics. So describe to us the feeling of how you felt getting Olympic bronze, but not just that it kind of links to overcoming setbacks. So obviously to, to get a bronze medal match, you would have had to come through a defeat. How did you get yourself to, the level where you could compete um, mentally. That's actually, that's a cool story. Cause so we, we had a great win in the quarterfinals. We beat, I think they were the number one team in the world at the time. Um, and, and so we were pumped about that. And we went into the semis. Uh, we thought we had a good shot and we got absolutely crushed. And a large part of that was our opponents were playing great. You know, they, they came out firing and didn't really give us a look in. Um, but we were really disappointed with our performance. And so we went straight from the match court onto a practice court on site and talked with our coach who was there and worked on specific things for about, I think for about two hours, two and a half hours after that match. Uh, just thinking, why did that go so badly? And how can we improve for tomorrow? Because the reality is we're playing a middle match tomorrow, you know, like, we're, we're still in a, in a pretty good spot here. Mm. Um, and so what we did was we, we went through a bunch of plays that we knew we could fall back on in pressure moments. And we did that for, for both of our serves, both sides, and just repeat, repeat, repeat until we felt like, okay, this is comfortable. We know where we're going. If it's a tight point, if it's a pressure situation, we're going to the well here and we know if we put this play on the court, we've got a decent chance of winning that point. And if we lose that point, then okay, we've done the right thing. And, and we know that we've, we've given ourselves the best chance. And I think that practice session and getting that sort of certainty in our heads meant that we went out the next day with a pretty specific and clear game plan. And actually the bronze medal match, we played really well. Um, so I, I'm, actually, I'm, I'm really proud of that bounce back because I think it would have been really easy to come off the semi-finals and be really crushed and and sort of go back to the hotel room and and wallow in it a little bit but we did the opposite and i think because of that we came away with with a bronze what did your bronze medal do for your imposter syndrome <laughs> yeah it <laughs> It, it has helped. It has helped for sure. I mean, so for me, that's by far the highlight of my career. Growing up in New Zealand, the Olympics is, is king. You know, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the center point of New Zealand sport. Um, so it's, it was a dream just to go to the Olympics uh, and to, to be able to hold on to that and to be able to, you know, give it to my mom and, and be able to look at it for the rest of my life. Um, it was huge for me and it also i think it was huge because there was a lot of recognition of it on the tour so you know i had a lot of people congratulating me about it and those those words i think helped so it was almost and it shouldn't be this way but you know just human nature i think it is it was like validation from my peers um made me think okay like i've done something pretty big now and and my peers have seen it and so doing it again wouldn't be as surprising um so yeah it, it did help for sure how supportive were your friends and family when it came to your early career and oh. even your career now this is I, I consider myself extremely lucky in this because i couldn't have done anything that i've done in my career without my parents um and my, my family as a whole, not, not just my parents, but my brother and sister. I mean, my siblings have been incredibly important. I, I actually want to 
give a special mention to my to my older brother because he was a tennis player growing up and um you know I, I started beating him when I don't know I was 11 or 12 he was sort of two two to three years older than me and for an older brother to to start getting beaten by a younger brother I think a lot of people would be really bitter and sort of carry a grudge about that for a long long time and he's just such a special person that I've never felt any bitterness from him. I've always felt genuine joy and happiness with, with my achievements. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a rare person who can, who can feel those feelings authentically. And, and he does. So he's, a, he's been incredible. My parents, I mean, you know, New Zealand tennis doesn't have any money. We don't have a federation that can support us to to travel as juniors to give us resources like coaches to to go to tournaments so without my parents uh this career would have been impossible um you know even like from a fr financial perspective early on and the emotional side is huge also i think having the sort of unconditional emotional support of of parents is a blessing and one that i know i'm lucky to have uh, so yeah, I'm, you know, I, around, especially around the Olympics, I got, I got really, really emotional about this side of things because there I was with, with this medal that was so incredibly special to me that I knew was absolutely impossible without this whole village of people who had helped me right from the start to get to this sort of peak point in my career. And yeah, I mean, you know, like I was a... I was a sobbing mess for for 20 minutes, half an hour after the medal and the media jumped on it and kept asking me these questions about people back home, just trying to get some more tears out of me and, and it worked. Um, so yeah, I, I can't, for me personally, I can't stress the importance of that, um, that emotional support group from the start. What would you say are some of the challenges when it comes to, to the finance side of, of tennis? Because with 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 tennis like prize money is obviously very important and sponsorship and stuff like that is very important so what are some of the challenges especially if you're not winning as much when it comes to the finance side of things this is this is i think the thing that isn't known outside the tennis world too much and that is that tennis might be one of the hardest sports in the world to make a living at because the, the pinnacle is incredibly steep. So I'd say there are only probably 300 players okay. on the men's side who are making a living from tennis. And that's out. Tennis is supposedly the second or third most popular sport in the world in terms of numbers of people who are into it and numbers of people who play it. And so if you compare that number, that, that let's say 300 people making a living, and you look at even let's say rugby in the uk i won't use football as an example because you know it's, it is just far and away the biggest sport in the world but let's let's talk rugby in the uk alone you'd have more than 300 players who are earning a living from playing rugby professionally in in the the national league there i, I forget what it's called uh, and that's just one country yeah. and and more than 300 players earning a living um so Tennis is incredibly hard. There are only a tiny percentage of people who start playing professional tennis yeah. earn a living. And the fact is the expenses are huge from the outset yeah. because just to, just to try to compete your way up from the lowest levels up to where you can make a living, yeah. you've got to be flying around from country to country, staying in hotels, paying for coaches. Um, so the, the, the burden is huge and the prize money at the lower levels is, is laughable. Yeah. Um, you know, if, at the futures level, which is still a good level, by the way, like those, those people can play tennis. They've been training since they were young teens intensely just to play tennis. Yeah. You can win a tournament and you'll probably about break even for the week. And in those tournaments, you've got usually 32 people in the main draw yeah. and then either 64 or 120, 28 people in the qualifying draw. Okay. So you'd have at least around 100 people who are losing money that week trying to become a professional tennis player. Wow. Um, yeah, so a few things play into that. Um, 
one is location where your home is this is where new zealand's actually really uh it's a difficult place to be a tennis player from because to compete in any professional events we need to do a huge flight overseas yeah. whereas if you're you know uh in central europe then you can drive to events pretty much throughout the year yeah. to try and get your ranking up and the costs are much less but yeah this is um this is the the dilemma of tennis is it's hugely expensive to put your name in the hat yeah. and keep your name in the hat for long enough to actually get through the levels um and the reality is sponsorship is only for the very elite few mm. and to become part of the elite few you've got to you've got to spend the money yeah um so yeah an, another really thorny thing and i think that actually speaks to the affordability part because while we might be able to make tennis affordable as a recreation um to make tennis affordable as a professional sport is is a whole other whole other question and, and one that's far more difficult i think do you know of anyone who's had to, let's say, not have a coach because they can't afford to pay them? Oh, yeah, me. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, you know, I, I, even at this stage of my career, yeah. it would be probably too big of a burden to have a coach full-time on tour. Yeah. Because the reality is, if you're employing a coach, you're employing an expert individual, so you're paying their salary, yeah. and you're also paying for them to fly around the world and stay in hotels yeah. all year. Yeah. So to have a coach on the road for a full year you're probably look, looking at something like a hundred thousand to a hundred and fifty thousand us dollars okay so just like just to have a coach on the road you've got to be earning that much in prize money alone that's without even considering covering your own expenses wow. or you know putting some savings away in the bank for when you retire yeah um and you retire early in sport um so yeah it's it's hugely expensive and until you're in that top sort of 300 bracket you probably won't have a coach with you for too many weeks yeah. of the year on the road but this is where federations can play a part is they can provide a coach to travel with a group of players or something like that and it's just i guess down to luck uh, as to which country you're born in and, and whether they have those resources available um one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is is it's in regards to coaching and it's on call so when i'm more when i'm watching singles so i wanted to talk to you a little bit about the singles so one of the things that i see is you know in the match and say i don't know one of the players they they have a bad shot and and they look straight to their coach now we know that their coach is not allowed to give any instructions um i'm always intrigued because all or most tennis players do this what does that do to you or what does that do for you uh, i guess emotionally when you know they can't say anything back they can't give you any instructions but you but tennis players still do the same thing of just venting to that coach yeah yeah so the first part um it happens more often than you than you'd hope like people do get coached and it's just it's sort of towing the line of trying not to get caught by the umpire wow um, but people okay. do get coached and and actually <laughs> i'm uh, so i sit on this thing called the atp player council and it's an active conversation at the moment to say should we make coaching legal because the fact is it happens yeah. and it's not penalized uniformly enough so would this actually be additive to the sport where uh where you know maybe we could put some microphones around and people who are watching can hear what's being exchanged between the coach and the player that might add an interesting perspective on, on what happens on court but yeah so it, it does happen more than you'd you'd like to think but it's also it's partly or perhaps largely emotional support like you know this is the person who's on your side and if you've just missed a really crucial shot and you're gutted and you look towards your coach you've got this solidarity between you and that person where it's like yeah i know that sucks let's let's carry on let's let's stay on it um often it's like for me anyway it's been like oh man we worked on this shot for the last week straight and i just missed it again and looking at my coach being like come on like how did i do this um but it's also it's not just in the bad moments uh you'll see almost always if someone wins a really crucial point 
and gets really pumped, they'll they'll shout at their box. They'll shout come on at their box because mm. again, it's that emotional support. It's like okay, you're coming with me on this on this lift up here. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's like that. I guess it's especially on the single side is uh, that feeling that maybe you're not completely alone out on the court. Mm. You've got someone there who's got your back even if they're not allowed to be there with you and talking to you it's it's that person that you can sort of lean on when things are when things are rough or and also you know um enjoy a moment with when things are great when it when it comes to on-court coaching is it i don't know if from the outside is it more of the younger generation are more for it than the older generation or is is that different also um when it comes to the ones that are for it, are they more for it because it's the ability to figure things out yourself? It's actually really mixed. And, mm. and I, I don't think I can split it between sort of a younger and an older generation. Mm. Uh, I think it's it depends on what people value in tennis. I mean, you know, like in the player council, it's been split where some people were saying, you know, what makes tennis special is you are out there alone. And people who are watching know that you're out there alone and you're, you're watching this individual try to figure something out and go through everything by themselves. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's an entertainment sport. It's a spectator sport. So it's an interesting question whether, and, and it'll be fascinating to do sort of a, a poll on this, whether viewers, whether the audience finds it more interesting to see someone battle their own demons and go through something themselves or to hear the feedback that's coming in and say, okay, that's interesting that that's what the coach is giving this player who's struggling right now. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know where, where things would fall, but it's, it's not a generational split, I, I can say that much. Okay. Um, so for me, one of my reservations would be, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are certain tennis players, I could imagine them having the opportunity to speak to their coach and then themselves and their coaches are ending up arguing about what instructions to follow, whether to follow this instruction. And then that's an extra two or three minutes. There's them just, you know, just throwing, you know, expletives at each other, throwing hand signals at each other. And yeah, it does add to the spice, but I just think my only reservation would be, will it be more of a hindrance on that player if they are given firm instructions and whilst the player is probably not go is probably not in a good period in the match it could actually have a a more of a um a bigger impact on their performance so that would be my reservation yeah for sure and and it would actually make the player coach relationship a little more interesting because mm. the player would have to intimately trust the coach to give them the advice in, in the toughest situations. Although I guess, I guess players are with coaches because of that trust anyway. You know, yeah. it, it is a, it is a really trusting relationship. And and you're right. There would have to be really strict guidelines on the when and the how of coaching. Like I don't think you'd you'd be able to disrupt the flow of play or that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think there there needs to be some careful thought as to how it would apply without being just annoying and, and a bit ridiculous. But wouldn't it also make things a bit, people a bit more ruthless towards their coach? And also when it comes to that, that's when you can talk about the money side of things. Maybe coaches will want more money if that was the case. That's another debate there. Yeah, it'll, it'll definitely make coaches more relevant and more, um, they'll get far more exposure in the sport. Um, and the interesting thing uh is that this movement is being pushed by the coaches. So, you know, maybe there is a bit of self-interest there of like, yeah, we want to we want a bit more of the spotlight and we think we deserve it. And to be fair, you know, in any sport, coaches are crucial. Yeah. You know, like athletes are who they are in a large part because of the coaches they work with. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I, I have a bit of a chuckle at it, but I, I don't blame them really. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting actually to see what, if they push for more money because of it or not. Okay. Um, I just want to move it on to crowds. So what crowd in what country would you say were the most hostile and most difficult to play in front of? So my personal experiences, 
one of the toughest I've had was playing against the Philippines in Davis Cup in the Philippines. <laughs> uh, that was brutal. <laughs> to the point where actually we had to have a police cordon oh around gosh. our box next to the court. No. Um, and wow. he was he was like vice president of the Philippines Tennis Association or something like that. Um, he he pushed me in the back and came at me about to punch me uh, oh during during one of our wow. one of our <laughs> teammates' matches. And the Philippines team had to like run in and grab him before he punched me. So there, there have wow. been some, there have been some situations. Makes, makes for a good story. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's one. And then the other, actually, you know, Australia is tough. Mm. If you're playing in Australia against Australians, yeah. that that crowd is pretty tough. And I've experienced so on on John Kane Arena at the Australian Open, playing against a couple of Aussies, had a pretty tough crowd. But actually, this Australian Open just gone. Um, so I share the same coach with with a British player called Liam Brody. Yeah. And yeah. Liam yeah, played yeah. against Nick Kyrgios first round. And yeah. I was in his box because basically it was like the more support he can get, the better against this crowd. Mm. And that mm. crowd was <laughs> insane. I, I think that might be the toughest situation in tennis is mm. playing against Nick in John Kane Arena at the Australian Open because the stuff that Liam was getting said to him was pretty disgusting. Wow. And it's just, yeah, it's it's a, just a different beast. And it happened actually as well to uh, the other, uh, an, another top Kiwi doubles player, Mike Venus. Uh, he played against Kyrgios and Kokonakis in the third round or quarters um, in the doubles. And I felt sorry for him. It was it was brutal. Wow, the the, the crowd. The thing is, the crowd can have a massive, massive impact. You even look at massive at, at the singles men's final where Medvedev <laughs> literally was against I don't know how many thousand people, and it's it it takes a lot to overcome that. Even if you're playing well, knowing that everyone is against you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's massive. It's 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 impossible to to relate unless you've experienced it mm. like yeah i mean j just imagine you're down there on this court and you've got five thousand people pretty close around you mm. just wanting you to lose and i think it's different in, in, in an individual sport compared to a team sport mm. with a team you've got your team around you yeah. you've got that that solidity that backbone of your team if you're an individual, it's like you against 5,000. Yeah. And it feels so much bigger than that. It's uh, it's an intangible, but it has a huge impact. How do you deal with it um, personally? So when you have the crowd against you, is that something that spurs you on? Or does it link into, or does it ignite some of that imposter syndrome that, I'm going back to once again. Yeah, it's it's a battle for me. So there is a, there's a piece of me that's like, okay, I'm going to show you guys. But I think it's there's a bigger piece of me that doesn't want to disappoint people. Yeah. Um, hmm. And you know, if the crowd's against you, it's because they want your opponents to win. Um, so it's it's a real internal fight for me. Uh, and I know some people actually feed off it. Like for the main part, Medvedev feeds off it. I mean, he had an incredible U.S. Open run where the crowd was strongly against them. Yeah. But it seemed like it seemed like it just it started getting to him at the Australian Open. I I felt really sorry for him because yeah. you know he's he's he never does anything wrong really. He just sort of goes about his business. Yeah. Um, but I think because of that, because he's just he's so robotic about like he doesn't really show emotion. He just goes and plays tennis. I think. Yeah, people don't relate to him as much as they do to other people. Um, another another one is Novak Djokovic. He can he can really feed off a crowd being against him. Yeah, because it's interesting what he's we've heard him say in the past that when he hears the crowd <laughs> saying someone else's name, he just thinks they're saying his name. So it, it says a lot about the mindset and how important the mindset is. It also, I think, says a lot about his ego and how he can <laughs> create his own alternate reality. But yeah, that's that's a whole other conversation yeah. we could have. I was going to say, so let's talk a little bit about your charity. 
Yeah, so um, it's called High Impact Athletes. Uh, it's still pretty new. I, I started it. Uh, actually, it was sort of a, a pandemic product. I started thinking about it when COVID first hit and the tour paused. But it's been it's been running for about 14 months now. And essentially, what High Impact Athletes is, is a platform where especially pro athletes, but also fans, members of the public can go to to find the most cost-effective and evidence-based charities in the world to give to. And so it's it's linking world-class athletes with world-class, world-class charities because a little-known fact is that in the charity space, the best charities can be a hundred times, a thousand times more impactful per dollar than an average charity. And it just makes a huge amount of sense that if you can do a hundred times the amount of good with a dollar, then you should. But it's really difficult to know which those hundred X opportunities are. Mm-hmm. So we work with the most stringent research organizations in the charity space uh, who all have publicly available, transparent research and data. And they have the highest recommendations in each sort of specific cause area. We take those recommendations and we try to put them in front of as many people as possible, particularly athletes. Um, So it's sort of, it's been almost like a sigh of relief for a lot of the athletes that I've spoken to who have wanted, have wanted to give back, have wanted to donate, but they've had these doubts about how much good their dollars will actually do, how much of each dollar will actually get to its end point. So to see all of these statistics and, and the research laid out bare in front of them, they're like, oh, finally, a place that I can trust to, to give my donations to. And yeah, it's, it's been incredible. It's, um, it's grown really quickly. You know, we have Olympic champions, world champions, Grand Slam champions um, on board, and, and it seems to be really building some momentum. So it's, it's fantastic. That's great. What ignited your mission? Well... So I've, I've always been quite uncomfortable with the sort of inherent selfishness of sport in general, and particularly tennis. Uh, it's, it's a necessary part of sport that you focus intensely on yourself, but I've never felt fully comfortable with that as a way of life. And the person who I want to be and who I try to be off the tennis court is far more open and giving and interconnected um, so this, that's sort of a battle that I fought for most of my career. And then actually when I started focusing on doubles, that was when I first actually started making money in tennis and making a living, like, you know, ended the year with, with more money than I started. And when that happened, when that little bit of financial security was felt and landed in me, then I started thinking, okay, now I actually have a chance to be able to give back. And I had no idea how to do that. So like any good millennial, I sort of jumped on Google and typed in, how do I give back best? And I came across this uh, movement called effective altruism, which is, it just asks that question, like, what is the maximum good that we can do with each dollar that we have to give or each hour of our time? And it just made a huge amount of sense to me. So I started donating the next year to these, the the most cost-effective organizations in the world. And I made a, a, 1% 1% pledge of all my income for the following year and then slowly built that up over time. Um, and 2021 or 2020 made the made a pledge to donate 10% uh, minimum for the rest of my life. And it's been, actually it's been a really beautiful shift because what, what it meant, especially the, the first time I made the pledge, uh, what it meant was that every piece of success that I had in my tennis career was great for me. And it was also great for something far bigger than me. It meant because every extra win that I had meant a bit of extra money donated to these amazing charities at the end of the year. And what that meant was my perspective on tennis completely changed because now I was playing for something bigger than myself and I was training for something bigger than myself. Uh, And like anyone uh, I assume, but like, any athlete i've had a rocky relationship with tennis you know it's it's love hate it's like it's really really hard sometimes but having this extra incentive and this wider perspective really helped my love of the game and helped me stick with it and um 
and it's yeah it's been a, a really beautiful thing in my life do you think it's gonna push you to carry on playing longer because you know of the the benefit of you being out there um showing your face for the, for the charity do you think that's gonna push you i think it already has mm. to be honest um and yeah going forward i think i think it will um and the other great thing is you know now that i have hia up and running i feel like i i've created something that's going to be my life's work like you know after tennis i'm really excited to build it into something huge and try to make giving a percentage of income a norm in the sporting space you know i mean imagine if if every athlete as part of their their life as an athlete just gave one percent of their income i mean it would be huge and imagine the precedent and the the sort of the model that that would set for kids growing up like okay yes i want to be like lebron james and i want to play basketball like him and part of being like lebron james is giving one percent of my income to these really effective organizations i mean that's that's maybe a bit of a moonshot but that as an idea really excites me for a young and impressionable listener who may think to themselves um why would i um give any of my winnings away um what in your opinion what is the importance or the yeah what is the importance of the action of giving back well i think i think to begin with it's an acknowledgement of privilege and the reality is especially like the pro athletes that we focus on they might not have started from a privileged position but they've got themselves into a privileged position so it's like okay i acknowledge that I'm really lucky. Uh, and part of that privilege is the responsibility of, of giving back. And the reality is there's this really cool uh, calculator on the HIA website that's for, called, I think, the How Rich Am I calculator. And the reality is, if you're earning minimum wage in a first world country, you're probably in the sort of top 80 to 85% richest people in the world. So for, for most people, who have been born in a first world country, we're really lucky. A as a baseline, we're really lucky. And then for professional athletes, it's like, okay, you've not, obviously not every professional athlete has come from a first world country, but it's like, you've got yourself to this position where you, A, are probably making decent money and B, have this huge platform where you can speak to people about the ideas of giving back and that's actually another huge lever that athletes have is uh, even if you didn't want to donate, and I, I highly recommend that people do because that's by far the most authentic way that you can relay a message. But with these platforms, we can speak out and maybe influence one really wealthy per person to start donating 1%. And then that could be, you know, 50 grand a year to this incredible charity that might save the lives of 10 kids or improve the lives of like 80,000 kids with you know so some of these interventions like um removing parasitic worms in africa that has a huge long-term impact on these kids lives you know they get better educated they're healthier they have more cognitive development they're like 50 cents a treatment so for for a hundred bucks you can drastically improve the lives of 200 kids who need it far more than than most people in first world countries so these are the sorts of opportunities that I get really excited about personally and that a lot of our athletes are amazed by because these sorts of opportunities are, are not very widely known. Um, but yeah, so in, in terms of the, the why giving back is important, I think it, it creates a perspective on your own privilege and your own blessings. And actually that perspective probably makes you more grateful for your life as, as a whole. And that's a, that's a good thing too. If someone was to describe you um, in terms of your mindset, what would they say? Uh, well, my wife's sitting outside <laughs> right now, and <laughs> um, I think she'd say different things to to people on tour, maybe. But I think um, I think people would describe me as as passionate. Uh, if I if I believe in something, I, I really sink my teeth into it and and go with it the whole way um yeah yeah i think that's that maybe passionate and maybe the other 
the other thing that comes to mind is curious. I think I have a, a, a very wide range of interests and just always love learning and learning about different things. Um, it's something that gives me a lot of pleasure in life. So yeah, probably, probably those two things. Okay. Um, my last question is links back to your charity. Do you have any stories that stand out since starting um, your charity and any testimonials that you'd like to share? Yeah, there's, there's one that springs to my mind. So I just, I mean, the caliber of athletes we're starting to get on board, like talking in the tennis space, um, the, probably the biggest name we have is Stefano Tsitsipas, who is, who is, you know, like number what four in the world right now and has won the year end finals, that sort of thing. Um, and he came on after one chat, you know, after one phone call. Uh, and I think that's a testament to the strength of those ideas. But the, the best quote I have from an athlete that I've been speaking to um, was Katrina Bissett, who's the Australasian 800-meter record holder. She's a, an, an Olympic sprinter from Australia. And uh, while I was explaining these ideas, uh, she said, shut up and take my credit card. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the, the power of these ideas and the power of the transparency of the data and, you know, mm. how confident you can be with these giving opportunities. Um, but I, I just love that. I was like, okay, job done. Like, here we go. <laughs> what a perfect way to end the podcast. Um, Marcus, how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, please, if, if you're interested in what we're doing at HIA, then uh, the, the website is highimpactathletes.org or you can find High Impact Athletes on any of the social medias or, or whatever. Um, especially if you're an athlete who's listening to the podcast, uh, who's interested in what we do at HIA, I'd love to, love to chat. So reach out through the socials or on the contact form on the website. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the dream is to just snowball this thing and, until we're moving millions of dollars a year to the best charities in the world um and you know I, I think we can make it happen so i'd love for everyone to be part of the journey okay marcus um really 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 appreciate you accepting our invitation um we are really really thankful we're happy you are our first tennis player and we have been waiting for a tennis player for a very 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 long time very very long time um, <laughs> hopefully i didn't disappoint no you no, didn't no, no, not at didn't. all <laughs> <laughs> we've enjoyed every 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 second of it and we truly appreciate you and congratulations once again on your bronze medal at tokyo thank you very much thanks for having me guys interesting conversation i i do enjoy reliving some of these especially the uh the chapel of bullshit talk that <laughs> always puts a smile on my face so thanks a lot yeah our pleasure if you are a new listener, welcome aboard. If you are a regular listener, continue to share and like. Until next time, guys, stay healthy, stay blessed. Peace.